Good evening. Welcome back. Thank, thank you for coming back to finish the year on Sunday nights. Hard to believe. Year's gone already. We started out a year ago talking about what people want to know about the Bible, kind of based on all of our years doing the Know Your Bible program and seeing so many questions from folks that are just basic folks that have a certain respect for the Bible and want to know what it has to say about certain topics and don't want a whole lot of uh, doctrine or fooling around. What does the Bible say about this? And so we picked some of those topics this year and tried to work through what the Bible does say about them uh, so we would be able to give an answer and be able to understand ourselves for that matter. And we may or we will make it through six topics this evening. Actually, we won't make it through this one because we could spend all year on this, but uh, we'll, we'll close the uh, four sessions that we did on why are there so many churches. I uh, get that from a, a lot of folks. Uh, people in the world are confused by the Church of the Yellow Pages. They look at that and uh, how do they know? Uh, just think about it. Suppose you decided you wanted to start going to church. You never had a church in your life and you wanted one and you opened the Yellow Pages and you'd be completely confused. Uh, so they asked, how come that is? If you got one Bible, if you got one Jesus, if you uh, supposedly following Jesus, how come there are so many of them? So that's what we've been working on for a few weeks here. And we went through the history, 2,000-year history of Christianity, the big chart on the back there. We worked through that and uh, finished last week by talking some about the Restoration Movement, which is kind of a unique uh, movement among Christi uh, Christianity, uh, of which we're a product of that movement. And um, it, it's not really part of the big chart because it doesn't flow from some church or try to reform some church or try to reject some church. Uh, it was just a movement that started here in America in the 1800s and a group of men from different denominations said, how, how could we be one? And they began to think along that line and uh, from that a movement arose that uh, produced the Churches of Christ, and we finished last week talking about the Christian Church a little bit and the Disciples of Christ who uh, split off in different ways from that. Uh, so we laid that groundwork about what the Restoration Movement was and is, and I thought it would be good to close with the bottom part of page one there, the practice of restoration. Uh, Campbell and Stone and uh, the other fellows that kind of thought it up and came up with the theory of restoration, uh, as I said last week, had trouble putting it into practice. Uh, it wasn't all smooth and wonderful and easy. A good theory, in fact, it's the only theory that would produce unity as far as I know, uh, but they didn't do perfectly at it. 
I mean, obviously, if there are divisions within the restoration movement, they didn't achieve unity. Uh, so the, the practice of it, I think, is a good thing to talk about a little bit because uh, we still hold to, I believe, I'm not, well, I guess I can't speak for everybody within the churches of Christ. I think there's some that probably don't. Uh, but in general, I think we still think, yeah, that's a good idea. We ought to restore the New Testament church. We want to be like the New Testament church. Uh, if we did, that would produce unity. Uh, so if we still believe that's worth pursuing, then we ought to talk about the practice a little bit. Uh, there are some, that, for instance, the Disciples of Christ decided a few years ago, I don't know how many, that that was not a viable goal to restore the New Testament church. So they basically said, we're going to quit trying. That's not one of our goals anymore. Uh, and they've since... Uh, changed quite a few of their beliefs and have standard hierarchy and all of that. Uh, so, the practice of restoration. Let's work through that in the time we have and see if we can learn a little bit about it. I thought the first thing that would be interesting to do is think about what happened when the first guys thought of this restoration idea. The uh, Campbells and Stones and others back in the 1800s. When they got people excited about this, and people did get excited because Christianity is a mess. All these different churches and denominations and names and groups and uh, hierarchies and all that. They said, this is a great movement. I want to be just a Christian. So they did get excited about it. And when they did, when they started to practice it, they had to do some really hard things. And sometimes we don't remember that or we don't think about it. We're kind of comfortable in our little restored group and we don't think about how hard it would be to come from a completely denominational world. And I wrote some things down that they had to do. Uh, first of all, they had to leave man-made organizations. Okay? If they had been raised in... One of these man-made organizations, the Methodist Church, Baptist Church, Presbyterian Church, uh, whatever, they had to leave that organization. Okay? Now, I mean, in theory, that sounds kind of easy. Well, if you want to be just a Christian, you've got to get out of that. Well, in practice, that's pretty hard. Uh, that's where your family is. That's where your friends are. That's uh, where all of that, uh, your whole history is there. And we talked a little bit about that, how they did do that. They left their, they, and they, most of them were preacher types. So not only were they leaving what they had been raised in, uh, they were leaving their livelihood in some sense and saying, I don't want to be a part of that synod or that uh, association anymore. And I'm going to go off and be just a Christian. So they had to do that. Whatever organization they were in, they had to leave. Uh, they had to change names on things. And uh, if the name was man-made, I mean, if your slogan is, we're going to say what the Bible says and not speak where it doesn't speak, and something's named wrong, then you've got to give up that name. Uh, Campbell, for instance, uh, came out of the 
All I said last week was he came out of the Presbyterian church, uh, but he really came out of the Presbyterian church that was the seceder movement from the Presbyterian church. Uh, but he really came out of the burger or anti-burger movement within the seceder Presbyterian church. And not hamburgers, but B-U-R-G-H-E-R, uh, rulers of some sort. And he didn't really come out of that. He came out of the new light or the old light burger or anti-burger seceder Presbyterian church. Okay, that's where they were. Well, we're still there today. There's groups like that that have all sorts of different splits and names. Okay, So he had to give that up. He had to say, okay, I'm not going to call myself that anymore. Uh, I'm going to call myself just a Christian. In fact, they actually, now that I just thought about it, uh, they had a little trouble over that, the names. Uh, Stone thought people ought to be called Christians, and Campbell was more that we ought to be called disciples. Okay? See how hard this is when you start <laughs> trying to practice it? I'm not going to use any man-made names, uh, so what Bible name do I pick for all of us? Well, the Bible calls us Christians. The Bible calls us disciples. A couple other things it calls us. So which one of those are you going to go with? Well, that's how the practice of restoration goes. Uh, and then once you start doing that, what you came out of, or the religious world in general, looks at you and gives you another name. How many of you are in here old enough to have ever even heard the name Campbellites? Okay, there's the old people in the group. Okay. At least the honest old people in the group. Okay. The churches that the Restoration Movement came out of saw Campbell as the kind of head of it or the, the organizer of it. And so they called everybody that was following him a Campbellite. And it was a very derogatory term. Uh, I've got some old books that when you read through and you, all of a sudden you start seeing that, uh, the Campbellites believe this and all that, you know, you've got an old book. Uh, so the, the religious world looked down on them for following a man in their view uh, and trying to be just Christians, just disciples instead of all these other names. So they had to change the name. Um, they had to renounce doctrines that they'd grown up being taught and believing. If your rule is we're just going to follow the Bible and you start reading the Bible and you can't find this doctrine that you've been taught all your life, then you've got to renounce that. Okay, That's not as easy as it sounds. You, 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 if that's all you've ever been taught and what your folks believe and they taught you and all of that, you got to renounce it somehow. Uh, for instance, you've been worshiping one way and you read the Bible, read the New Testament, and it doesn't say anything about some of the things you've been doing. Well, you've got to say, okay, that's got to be the wrong way to worship if we're going to worship just like the New Testament says. Uh, if you grew up in a hierarchy and you start reading the New Testament and you can't find a hierarchy, 
You know, all you can find is a local organization of elders in every church. Then you've got to renounce that hierarchy. And you've got to say, okay, we're just going to organize this way. If you've grown up in this, uh, where a doctrine is taught that there's clergy and laity, and there's a difference between those, and you can't find that in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament specifically says we're all priests. Okay? You've got to change your whole thinking about that. And then that, that one, for instance, goes back to changing names. You've got to call people different things. If you really want to just follow the, the New Testament. Yeah. Um, they disbanded whole churches, whole denominations. Once they started getting serious about restoring the New Testament church. Uh, we talked last week about the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery where a group of them said, we don't want to have a hierarchy. We don't want this denomination thing. We just want to be Christians. So they wrote a document that said, we want this presbytery, this organization of which we're a member, uh, we want it to die. Uh, If I had a note here, I couldn't quite read. But, but they did that a lot of places. Uh, people within a church, a denomination, decided, okay, this thing I'm hearing about restoration, that makes sense. So I'm either going to quit this denomination and start follow, meeting with these folks, or maybe the whole church of us will. Yeah. And that happened a lot in those days because people were excited about this. Um, forgive me just a moment here for some personal stuff, but I've done some genealogy work. And my grandmother, my dad's mother, came from Kentucky, uh, settled down around Clearwater uh, in that area. Uh, but that, that group that came from there was involved in the restoration movement the early days of it, back in the 1830s and in there. And so I found some, in my digging, I found some books. Uh, one is the history of Girard County, Kentucky, and its churches. And here's some of the things it said. One, this is about the Liberty Baptist Church in 1833. Uh, it said, in, 19, in 1833, John Thompson Dean, a soldier of the War of 1812, uh, moved to Madison County and preached at Liberty. The record says his success was small. Perhaps the reason was that this was the period of disturbance in all churches of Kentucky because of the teachings of Alexander Campbell, Raccoon John Smith, and others. Some members withdrew and united with churches of the Disciples of Christ faith not far away. So that's in a history book. It says this guy came here to preach and he had a hard time because people were leaving all these churches uh, to practice what Alexander Campbell and others were teaching. Uh, then it mentions another fellow. It said, uh, as a boy, he had been associated with Thompson Broadus, 
who became an able minister in the Disciples of Christ Church. Now understand, in these early days, they hadn't decided what to call themselves. They were still arguing over it and trying different names and things. Uh, and uh, it goes on and says that he spent the greater part of his preaching life in the state of Kansas. Okay, Broadus, D.T. Broadus, some of you, you old enough to remember D.T. Broadus, some of the Broaduses. Okay, they were part of my grandmother's family that came from the original Restoration Movement. Um, okay, in this history book, here's another last item about the Antioch Christian Church. It says the disciples of Jesus Christ, see there's a little different name, continued to meet at Old Sugar Creek Meeting House until 1835 when they built the New Stone Meeting House. The disciples at Liberty united with the Sugar Creek Church, uh, which was a Baptist church, and became one body under the name Disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's what was going on then, back in the Restoration Movement. People that were saying, yeah, let's just study the Bible and do what it says and all that. They were upsetting the whole apple cart. The whole denominations were changing, whole churches. That's serious business. I'm trying to make you see what really happens if you get serious about this. Now, the next thing I put down was they discovered error and made changes gradually and slowly. Sometimes when we tell this story, it's like Alexander Campbell woke up one day and said, let's just do what the New Testament says. And the next day there were churches of Christ everywhere. You know, No, it took decades. And it wasn't always smooth. Uh, as they discovered things, as they began to read the New Testament with a whole new mindset, instead of trying to verify what they had always been taught, uh, they found things that they said, whoa, we've we got to do something about this. Um, for instance, Campbell decided the Presbyterian organization was wrong, but he didn't have so much trouble with the Baptist organization because it was pretty autonomous, pretty non-hierarchical and all that. So he actually worshipped and worked with the Baptists for 17 years. Okay. Almost two decades before he got around to thinking, okay, we've got to change the name. We've got to do this too. Okay. In fact, most of his writings are huge bulk of his writings are the paper he published called The Christian Baptist. In fact, I think we may have that in the library, some of it. Uh, and then he wrote The Millennial Harbinger after that. But The Christian Baptist, that's the way he thought of himself. I just want to be a Christian, but I'm fellowshipping and working with these Baptists because they're a lot better than the Presbyterians. And things developed as they went along. Uh, for instance, baptism, that's an interesting one. Uh, most of these groups that the Campbells and others came out of had infant baptism uh, and sprinkling for babies and all of that. Uh, uh, Campbell and Stone, for that matter, too, had been baptized as infants. Uh, and let's see, I'm trying to find the date here. I wrote it down somewhere. I think 1811 is what I've got written down. Somewhere in there, Thomas, Thomas Campbell 
got to reading the New Testament with this new mindset that let's just do what it says. And so he went to Alexander and said, you know, I can't find infant baptism anywhere in here. All I can see is baptism for believers. If you believe, you can be baptized. And I can't find sprinkling either. There's immersion in here is what what the word means and all of that. And so in 1812, uh, Thomas and Alexander baptized each other. That's the kind of thing that happens when you really get serious about restoration. That's the practice of restoration. You come upon things, you find out you've been wrong, you change it and try to do it right. Now the reason I went through all that is if you could put that in today's terms and think of you finding things that you've been wrong about all your life, and that's even hard to imagine because we know we're right. You know, <laughs> But if you can imagine that, that you've been wrong about something all your life, the actually fixing it and change it is hard. Okay, that's why restoration's hard. For some reason, in this age, there were a lot of people that had the spirit to do that. I think there's way fewer people today that have the spirit to do that. I mean, you can show somebody, sit them down. They may have been raised; they sprinkles infants and all that, and they think that's just fine. And you sit them down and show them very clearly in the Bible, no, here's what the Bible says about it. And you get all done, and they may say, oh, okay, I think I'm all right. I don't need to change anything. Uh, That's a different spirit than a spirit of restoration. But it's just, I think it is harder today. Um, Okay, last point I put down, and we'll spend a little time wrapping up on this, where they really, things really got hard, and all this other stuff was hard, is what I've been trying to emphasize, but where things really got hard is they had to choose between unity and restoration. Now, in theory, if you restore the New Testament church and you agree with the principles that I put up there last week, that Christianity was perfect when it started, so if we just do what the New Testament says, since it's the Constitution, we'll get what the Bible teaches. If you believe in that theory, that sounds kind of easy, but the practice of it eventually ends up making you choose between restoration and unity. Okay? That's the hard part. You get to that line. Everybody gets to that line sometime. Stone and Campbell got to that line. All of them do. If you start out saying, I'm going to restore the church, you can do that to the best of your knowledge and your understanding, but not everybody's going to agree with you. So that's going to cause you to break unity with somebody. If you want unity, you're going to have to say, all right, well, that point of restoration, I won't hold so tightly to that maybe. I'll go for unity instead. Okay. And there's a there's an antagonism between those two things. Okay. Uh, I often 
use the example of restoration, of restoring old cars, because I know we've got some folks here that under, understand that. And some understand it to the millionth degree. I want it exactly like it was when it came off the assembly line. Okay, And if you, if you really believe that and you really pursue that, and it was a matter of faith instead of a matter of sheet metal, if it was a matter of faith, that would separate you from those who didn't think that was quite so important. Okay? You couldn't, couldn't associate with very many people if you had to have it perfect. And I know that a car and church aren't the same thing, but that's where it comes down to. Restoration and unity have a antagonistic relationship with each other. Stone, Barton Stone, went more for unity, and the followers of Campbell went more for restoration. Is kind of where that first divide started. Yeah, Campbell started out wanting unity. That was his goal. And by associating with the Baptists and all that, you saw he believed in it. But their followers ended up kind of going two different directions. Uh, Stone's followers thought unity was more important, so let's not be so picky about some things, if I can use that term. And Campbell's followers tended to be more hard-lined about, no, we're going to restore the church. We're going to get it perfect. Okay. Now, I think they isolated their efforts in certain areas and got stuck in certain areas, but that's kind of where the divide came. Okay. Now, that, that, to me, that's the practice of restoration. I think it's a worthy goal. I think... We ought to teach as true as we always can, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's going to come down to a pick between restoration and unity. Now, if we're going to practice this today, which I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm advocating we should. But I think there's a couple of things we've got to decide on. And that's what I put down here last and we'll say real quickly. Obviously, to me, anyway, you've got to decide what's essential to salvation. Okay. If you're going to have the most unity you can with the most restoration you can, I think you've got to decide at some point what's really essential for salvation. If you don't understand that, if you decide that every little bit is essential to restoration, then you're not going to have any unity. So if you can agree on pretty much what's essential to salvation, then you can go from there to work on unity. Now, like I said, we could spend all year on this, and this is a whole bunch of other sermons if we wanted to get serious about it. But when I, when I say we've got to decide what's essential to salvation, is what I mean is somebody says, okay, I don't believe we can do this. I don't believe we can do that. I don't think this is the right thing to do, whatever, if we're going to just follow the New Testament. Okay, you may be right. But are we going to divide over that or not? Or are we going to have unity? If we're going to have unity, we've got to decide, okay, is that going to keep somebody out of heaven? 
is the basic question. And, you know, drawing that line, I've, I've tried to picture that before, uh, the higher you can draw, if you, if you make a list of everything you believe, if I made a list of everything I believe about the New Testament and what it teaches, nobody in here would agree with that whole list. I don't think. There might be somebody else perfectly right in here, but I don't think so. I think at some point we'd disagree down there. Well, the higher we can draw that line that, okay, we disagree about this, but we're going to get along anyway. The higher we can draw that line, the more unity we get. The lower we draw it, you know, the less unity we get. I don't know what kind of experience the committee on finding a new youth minister is found or not, but the last time we searched for a staff member around here, uh, we started getting things in the mail from people. In fact, Clayton, I remember, was the one opening the mail, and he'd come to me sometimes, and he'd say, I just got an application from a guy with his resume, and he's got a sheet here of 85 essentials that we must believe. That's that trash can. Uh, that's where he's drawn his line. He's drawn his line way, way down here. Where if you don't agree with me on everything, then you're wrong. Okay? So uh, picking that place or deciding how where unity and restoration agree can get along is a pretty good question to ask is, well, is that essential to salvation? And people think about that in different ways. I already told you in a couple of sermons how I think about it. Uh, One question I always ask myself is, is that going to be on the entrance exam? When I get there, is the judge going to ask that? What do you think about this? Well, he's already going to know, but if I think of it that way, if that's going to be on the entrance exam, my list gets shorter. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot on the entrance exam. Uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I, I think about the Ethiopian, the eunuch. You know, how much did he know? How much was, my list of everything I understand about the New Testament, how much of that did he understand? Hardly any of it. He never heard of it. Okay? The people in the Dark Ages, my, my old... Uh, ancestor Thomas Tandy uh, what did he know about what I know he didn't have a Bible the only thing he knew about Christianity was what the rectors at his church told him he didn't know hardly anything Uh, is the grace of God going to get him in heaven anyway it's so I, and I ask myself those kind of questions. What's essential? And that, that doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean something that we disagree with might cause a break in fellowship. What breaks fellowship and what the essential salvation is two different things, by the way. But if we start by asking, is that essential to salvation? And if it isn't, we've got to figure out how to get along about it. And that's those four verses I put down there at the bottom about what's essential for unity. Because we're told we're supposed to agree. 
We're supposed to be have one mind about things. Be like-minded. Be one in spirit and purpose. In the humility, consider others better. We're told to don't judge disputable matters. We're supposed to make every effort for peace. Okay. So if we start out with what's essential to salvation and then figure everything else, we're going to figure out how to get along. We can kind of balance these things. Obviously, we don't do it perfectly because there's divisions all over. But I think the divisions come from people that don't follow that bottom part there and don't work as hard as they should for unity, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and like I said, this is a whole different sermon. I don't want to get off there, but I will very quickly kind of tell you what I think is essential to salvation, in case you're wondering. Uh, and the test I kind of use to get my list started is go through the Bible, and if it says you've got to do this to go to heaven, I figure that's an essential. If it says if you don't do this, you'll go to hell, I'm counting that essential. Okay? Maybe a little tight on that, but it's just the way I think about it. If the <laughs> humor there, folks. The, the, <laughs> if the Bible specifically says... You gotta believe this, do this, understand it this way, or you're not going to heaven. Then I'll put it on the list. Okay? And there are a few verses like that. The Bible says in Hebrews 1.16, if you, if you come to God, anybody that comes to God must believe that God exists. Okay, that's number one on the list. You gotta believe in God. That rules out atheists. Okay. And every step you take down this list rules somebody else out. And the bigger you make your list of essentials, the more people you rule out. Yeah. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 4.15 says that. You must believe that. 1 Corinthians 15 says, you've got to believe that Jesus died for our sins. It's an essential. If you don't believe Jesus died for our sins, you can't get to heaven. Some of them are a little hard. Matthew 16, 24 says, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Now, obviously, there's degrees in that that you got to think how much denying we're talking about. But at the very least, you got to put him over self. In the matter of obedience and other things that we could talk about if we had weeks and weeks and weeks. Acts 2.38, they said, what must we do? What do we have to do, Peter? He said, you got to repent. Okay, so that goes on the list. Next couple of words, he said, you've got to be baptized. So that goes on the list. Romans 10.9 says you've got to confess. If you don't confess his name before people, he won't confess you in heaven. 1 John 3.4 says if you don't love each other, you're not in Christ. Okay. So you can go through the Bible and find a few verses that say you've got to do this. If you don't do this, you're not in Christ. I call those essentials. Yeah. 
Um, in case you've been counting, that's eight of them that I gave you. I don't know of any others. The verses that say you must do this. Now, do I think a whole lot of other things are important and true and all that? Yeah. But just for a starting list to see what the Bible says you must do or you're not going to heaven, I can't find any others. And I've said that every few years for 15 years at least and asked people to give me another one if they got one. I think I did get one one time. I forgot to write it down, though. I did. They, they, I mean, I remember that. I think I've got it somewhere. But there aren't many others, folks, in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean other things aren't important. doesn't mean other things can't divide fellowship. But if we start out trying to restore what's essential and then get along with everything else, we'll up that unity quotient a bit uh, instead of having as many divisions as calling everything essential. Okay, I realize I've left everything in the air on this and haven't uh, concluded anything, but that wasn't what the lesson was about. The lesson was about why are there so many churches, and the reason is even restoration is hard. The rest of Christianity messed up for all sorts of reasons because of men changing organizations and doctrines and all that. But even within the group that says we're going to restore it, it's still hard. All right, we're going to quit there because it's about time to quit. Uh, or we could just go on and on and on. All right, we are uh, finished with that topic for the year of why people, what people want to know about the Bible. I appreciate your kind attention, even when it wasn't that interesting to you, perhaps. You, you kind of looked like it was, so I appreciate that. Lesson is yours. If you need to respond some way, we'd be happy to help you tonight on the last uh, meeting of the the year. I guess we got Wednesday night. We'll be together for a little Devo, but other than that, this is the last time we'll be in the public assembly. If there's something you need to take care of this year before a new year starts, we'd be happy to help you. Let's stand and sing and come if you need to.